So let's start, uh, start back in, Ju- in verse 1 here. Let's go down through verse 3. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So we've spent, you know, I think this is week three. um, And, you know, last week we kind of broke down those terms in verse two. We talked about, you know, what is grace and what is mercy and what is peace and and what is love. And, you know, we kind of just spent some time getting those things grounded back into into, uh, scriptural truth there. Uh, We spent some time in verse one talking about those those terms that we are called, you know, um, being set apart, sanctified, or called, beloved in God the Father, kept or preserved for Jesus Christ, for His purpose. And, you know, so we, we've, we've kind of laid some groundwork there. Verse 3, though, um, Jude kind of gets right to it. And here, here's the thing. When you have, I mean, Jude, Jude is a short book, you know, and, but it, it is dense it, and, and, it's, and it's deep. And it's, it's deep in the, in the meaning that, like, if you have a conversation with somebody, like, you know what I mean, if, if you talk to somebody and, and, and you've had a shallow conversation, like, it wasn't about anything, you know, someone just wanted to talk about the weather or, you know, whatever, and then you've had conversations that you walk away from, and it's like, that, that was pretty deep, and meaning that it, it connected to a lot of things in your life and their life, and, you know, in the church, we, th- those are good conversations, you know, I, I, there's, a, there's a, a preacher friend of mine out in uh, Flemingsburg, Willie Martin, that, you know, he, me and him have talked a lot about how it's a shame that in the church it's hard to find Christians you can have deep meaningful spiritual conversations with and that shouldn't be the case I mean we should be able to have those conversations with with every Christian but so many are just not focused on spiritual things and, and meaningful things they're their heads in the world instead of in the kingdom and so it makes it difficult but but Jude 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 puts a lot I mean like I said it's very very dense there's so much in each one of these verses but the thing is that you know, there's an urgency in this in this letter about what we're dealing with, and you know when 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 things are important, you know you don't have a lot of time to say the things that you need to say. You just got to get to the point, and so Jude Jude gets right out of there and gets right to the point, and and that's that's an important part of this, you know. It says here, you know, beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. And so Jude sits down and he's saying, I, I sat down to write a letter. And, you know, the letter that he intended to write is not the letter that we're reading. Do we understand that? So he says, I, I, beloved, I sat down to, I made every effort to write to you about our common salvation. So the things we share in Christ. Right, the the things that we share in the church and the body, you know, our common salvation. You know, it was, it was the uplifting letter, an encouraging letter uh, about those those things that we have in in, in Christ, and you know, and he it, that's the letter he wanted to write, and that that's important to see out of this. He it says he made every effort to write that letter, okay, and then he couldn't do it, couldn't do it because there's something else, you know, of greater necessity that trumped the desire to write about our common salvation. And he had to tell the church instead that it was time for them to take a stand and to start fighting for their faith 
or for the faith, that they needed to take an active role in what was happening. They couldn't just sit on the sidelines and, and let these things take place. And that they needed to not just make it a priority, but they needed to take it personally. Like they needed to take it personally and they needed to make it their responsibility. And what tends to happen today is exactly the opposite of that. It seems like today, you know, and, and I've, I've seen a lot of preachers that'll do this, we have a problem in the church that needs to be addressed and we make every possible effort to avoid talking about it at all costs. Why do we do that? Like, what are we going to accomplish there? You know, I mean, there's zero situations in this world at all where if you have a problem in your marriage, with your children, with, with people you work with, that you think by ignoring it, that problem's going to get better. What happens? It gets worse. Things left unattended get worse. They grow, they get bigger, they get... And then eventually what started out as a problem that maybe you could have managed ends up being a problem, you know, some, like you deal with couples, you deal with marriages, you see this all the time, you get a couple and it's like, they can't stand each other, but they don't, they don't even know why anymore. Like, you know, it, whenever the problem started and they just thought, well, I'll avoid the fight by not bringing it up, they could have probably took care of it. But because they let it go and resentment grew and bitterness grew, you know, and then now they're at each other to the point where like the marriage is over, man. And, the, you know, it grew to the point where it just took them both out. You know, churches do the same thing i've been in churches where people hate each other can't even tell me why they hate each other you know they can't get along you know there's problems growing in the church nobody wants to talk about it it's the big elephant in the room we're just going to get up and preach on the same thing every week and the problems that need to be addressed continue to be not addressed and it's not helpful not helpful and so, like I said, there's a lot of times where, you know, people will intentionally ignore the things that have to be talked about. And it's not just preachers. Preachers will, preachers will go along with it, but I have been the recipient of a conversation, many conversations, where someone will come up and say, hey, we've got, we've got someone here tonight that's not a Christian, and they believe some different things, so make sure you don't talk about those things. Okay, you, you preachers here ever heard that? Okay, you know, it's usually in the, in the form of, well, so-and-so came today, you know, they're Methodist or they're Baptist or they're Catholic or there's something like that. So don't, like, don't talk about anything that might upset them or offend them. And like, heaven forbid we save them. You know what I mean? Like, we don't want to convict them with the truth or anything. Let's allow them to continue to be lost for all eternity. That's the loving thing to do in that situation, isn't it? Because at least what? We didn't run them off that way. See, Jude talks about what needs to be talked about. And there's, guys, there's a lesson to that. Like, you know, there's things that I would, you know, there's, there's been times in the church where there's like, boy, this is what I'd like to talk about today, but I can't do it. Like, there's other things that have to be talked. There's been times where I've gotten in the pulpit and I've had to fold my sermon up and put it in the back because, you know what, we got a bigger issue today that we got to deal with, and so we're going to deal with it. And, you know, and I'm not smart enough to deal with more than one problem at a time, so I tend to deal with something and deal with it and deal with it until it ain't a problem anymore or the problem leaves. And so that, that tends to, and maybe that's not the best way to deal with it, but I don't ignore it, you know. And so Jude isn't going to ignore it either. And so he's getting right to the point and he's saying, this isn't what I want to talk about. Um, and, and here's the deal, guys. 
there is what Jude wants to do, and then there's what Jude has to do. And we have to see that in our Christian lives, in our families, in the church, those two things are almost never the same things. Like there's things we have to do, and then there's things that we want to do. And it's, it's very, very seldom ends up being the same thing. And so, you know, there's, the, here's what's necessary. And we need to sort this stuff out in our life. Okay, what's necessary may conflict with what you want. Well, who's going to win that battle then? What's necessary or what you want? What's necessary may conf- will certainly conflict with what's convenient for you in the moment. And then well, you've got to determine who's going to win that fight. What's convenient? My desires? What's easy for me? My comfort? My comfort zone? Or what has to be done? What really needs to be done? You know, there's, there's what's necessary, and then there's, there's what's easy. Okay, again, never the same thing. So the, the thing is, the reason this is necessary for Jude, again, no doubt he began to write about their common salvation, and in so doing so, there's no way he can talk about their common salvation without thinking about the fact that there are people in the congregation, people in the Lord's church, that are walking away from that, that are in jeopardy of losing it. Right, who had left that salvation behind, and now he turns to the rest who are not far behind that. And as we go through this book of Jude, you're going to see that he splits everybody up into two categories. There are those that are causing trouble, that are in, and again, this isn't from the world. This is from the church. This is within the body of Christ. He brings up that there are those that are fault finders, that there are those who grumble and those who complain. Those who are sneaking in uh, false doctrines and all these sorts of things into the church. So there's, there's one group. And then there's this other group that is left and they're to build things up. They're to move things forward. They're to be the solution to the problem. And, and when you think about that right now, just consider your congregation, consider yourself, consider the churches you've been in and realize, okay, if the preacher's going to address two groups of people, one's the problem and one's going to be the solution, do you think anybody in their right mind is really going to sit there and think, oh, I'm the problem. You, you get what I'm saying? And, 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 and here's, there's, there's a point to this because it's got to be one or the other. And so sometimes it'd be easy for me to sit here and say, well, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm going to be part of the solution and I'm doing the right thing because I'm not going to be the problem. But when you, when you get right down to the specifics and he defines what it looks like to be the problem and what it looks like to be the solution, there's not a lot of gray area to hide in. You know what I mean? It's real apparent which side of the fence you're on. Uh, but in doing that, hopefully, you know, we'd understand that the first person to sort out in this isn't the person you sit next to in the pew. Like, it's you. You have to decide as you go through this letter, all right, am I going to be the trouble, right? Or am I going to be the solution? Am I going to hold things back? Or I'm, am I going to push things forward? Like, th- th- those are your choices. There isn't a middle ground. There isn't neutral territory, Right? There isn't this, this stalemate where you can just kind of plateau out and I'm done and I'm not hurting or helping. doesn't work that way. You're either moving things forward or you're becoming a roadblock and, and stopping progress. Okay? In the body of Christ, every part of the body has to do their job. We all have to be in functional working order in order to make this work. And so we don't get to sit back and say, well, I, this doesn't apply to me. Right? This, this applies to everybody else, okay? And so Jude's talking about some very, very important things here. And so he's turning to everybody else, and he sets this up in that manner, okay? You've got to pick. And all, all I'm saying is that, again, I don't, if anybody cares at all, everyone in here is going to look at this and say, well, I'm going to be 
part of the solution. And that's fine because maybe yesterday you were part of the problem, but if you can identify with the solution and say, I'm going to, you know what, that's what I'm, I don't want to be a fault finder. I don't want to be that guy going around calling out everybody's problems. Okay, well, maybe you were last week. Don't do it again. Like, start moving away from that. Identify the problem, you know. And, and all the problems that I've dealt with in the church, Jude, man, he nails them all on the head. He calls them all out. These are, I've met these people. And everybody that I've been a part of, I've, I've met these people. Some of them have been me, believe it or not. Like, he calls all of this out. And so as we start going through this, it's real important to kind of pay attention to figure out where we're at in this, okay? But, uh, you know, he's, he's going to bring this out, and uh, we're going to talk more about it when we get into verse 4. But, but look, look, let's start laying this out, okay? He says, uh, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. That the word appealing here in the Greek, you know, I hear that word appealing and it's like begging, asking, but the work uh, the word in the Greek is is para uh, kaleo, which you guys remember what para means? alongside right the parable study para means to come alongside parallel lines a parachute you know <laughs> a paragraph so para means to bring alongside kaleo means to call this is a call to arms guys he is calling the christians to stand up and to, and to, and to take their place in this battle right when he says that i'm that i am appealing for them it's to call them to join him in this fight for the faith, right? To, to call out, to beseech, to urge. Turn, turn to Romans chapter 12, verse I know we're familiar with, and we use this all the time, but the same Greek word is used here in Romans 12, 1. Okay, the New American Standard translates it, therefore I urge you, brethren, right? I think the King James will say uh, yeah, that he beseech you, Right, but it's the same idea. That's this this call to come alongside and take part in this. And it's it's here's the deal. It's it's got to be personal, right? You have to have this urgency. Uh, you know, when he says, you know, I felt the necessity. I had to I had to quit writing about our common salvation. I had to appeal. I had to urge you. I had to call you alongside to be fighters for the faith. That's what he's saying here. And so it, it, this has got to be personal. And one of the things that I think we really need to stress in our congregations is that people need to take this more personally than they do. This, this past couple weeks, I've been preaching uh, down at Glencoe about the body and how the body needs to work. And it's you know pretty basic stuff. But you know one of the things that just kind of hit me, it's like, you get people that don't seem to really care all that much. I'm not saying they're like anti-church. I mean, these are Christians that are part, you know, but they don't really get personally involved with that much. And, you know, I started thinking, I mean, do they, what do they think happens if the church don't make it? Like, do they really think that they, they make it if the church doesn't? Like, that's not a scenario that can exist. Like, I know that if we make it, that I get, it, I get to make it too. I also know that if we fail, that means I failed. Right, and so you know, it, it's this idea that we, you know, we all need to participate on a personal level. And when, 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 when the church becomes attacked, when the church starts falling apart, when truth becomes compromised, we need to take that personally, as personally as Jesus would take it. You know, and and, 
until you've had any skin in the game, that's not going to happen. Until you've had people that you love and you care about who have been taken out of the church by false doctrine, who have died lost because somebody else fed them a lie and they believed it, like you don't understand the pain, the heartache, and the damage that false doctrine can do. And we, we have the solution to that, but we're not going to fight that by sitting on the sidelines. Right? And so when false... Te- and, and false... Te- this is good to know too. Uh, you know, uh, it's a generalization of this, but it, it's pretty... I think it's pretty accurate. I haven't found any example that, that doesn't work. I, I think any form of false teaching, any form of false teaching, the end result of it is it keeps people stuck in their sins. Period. Keeps people stuck in their sins. Keeps people out of Christ. And that means they're stuck in their sins, not now, but for all eternity. That's, and that's a dangerous thing. That is a dangerous thing. Jesus came to save people from their sins. And false teaching one way or the other uh, stops that from happening in their life. It keeps them stuck in their sin. And so, anyway, this, just, this has got to be a personal thing. And then Jude uses a, a, a different word. He uses this word contender, right? He says that I had to appeal, um, you know, to call aside, right? That's the idea, to call you aside, to, to beseech you, to urge you. And then he says, um, let me find Jude again. <clears throat> He says uh, that he had to, to appeal that they contend earnestly. Now, that word contend here, it's, so contend earnestly is one word in the Greek. And it's a very, it's a very intense word. Uh, that's why the New American Standard added the word earnesty to kind of intensify contend a little bit. Um, you know, so, but it's, it's one of these words that's only used one time in the New Testament. And so, you know, anytime you see a word that's like the Holy Spirit was like this word, not going to use it anywhere else, but this one time it's worth paying attention. Um, that those are, those seem to be kind of, you know, special use words. And so this is the only time this word's found in the, in, in the Greek, Greek, Greek language in the New Testament. And it means to contend as a combatant. But again, it's a very, very strong word that's used here and contend like almost gets it there but earnestly is is to help get the translation along and so you know it's it's this idea of not just fighting but exerting yourself with intense effort to the point where you can't anymore right and so in other words you know we need to exert ourselves when it comes to standing for the truth and when it comes to protecting and keeping the church the way that Jesus intended it to be we need to exert ourselves and use all our energy and all our resources to do that. Um, and boy, that is not the picture that we get today. What we get today is, well, it's not that big of a deal. Like, I mean, I hear that with stuff all the time. It's like, well, you know, they're pretty, so, I mean, they baptize over here, but they, you know, they've got some things messed up, but it's not that big of a deal. Man, truth matters. And, and I'm not saying that we need to become Pharisees here. I'm, I'm just saying, like, if you see something that's out of place, work to put it back in place. Don't just assume that it's okay being out of place. And, and the way doctrine works, the way theology works, the way the Bible works, the way our faith works is, you know, you start diving into stuff like Calvinism and, and some of the doctrines that are, that, are, that, are, that are put into place in some of these places, and you realize it's not just one teaching that's wrong. It's the whole thing gets messed up because if you, it, it's like a, like a tapestry. If you pull one thread, it distorts everything. And so when you start looking at doctrines like once saved, always saved, and you look at doctrines like uh, original sin and total depravity and all of that kind of stuff, you find out that, man, they all exist 
like these to support each other like you don't you don't wind up with just one of those without also having all the other ones to prop it up and so you know i've i've known people that are like well hey you know let's using a book for example they'll pass out a book to their congregation and they'll say okay we're gonna we're gonna teach this book for a Sunday school class and it's written by a denominational guy it's full of false teaching and then they say well it's not a big deal because we know better you know well the only thing he's got wrong is baptism yeah right I've never met someone that the only thing they had wrong was baptism like if you can't figure that out I guarantee you there's other things they haven't figured out like baptism's a pretty simple concept in the scriptures okay and so you know to sit back and say well the only thing they got messed up is this one thing no it's not man you're not paying attention and to bring the wolf right into your congregation and hand it out to everybody that's a dangerous dangerous thing dangerous thing and so anyway we have to take this personal we have to exert ourselves in protecting the flock into keeping the faith into keeping false false doctrine at bay and we're going to see the fight that comes in here man it comes in through the front door like he brings up look just look at the next verse verse four for certain people for, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed and we're going to get to this you know we're not at verse four yet but they, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now, there's, there's two problems with that. One, they're, they're creeping in, which means they know what they're doing is wrong. But the other problem is that it happened unnoticed, and that shouldn't happen in the church. We should be paying attention. Um, you know, we, we, we talked a bit this Sunday school class, uh, you know, at, Gl- at Glencoe Sunday about, like Thomas Jefferson once said that the price of our freedom was eternal vigilance. Uh, now, he didn't come up with that, but he did, he did quote that. Um, and, you know, but in the original quote was basically that the price of not being eternally vigilant with our freedom was, was going to be slavery. And so, you know, what does that mean to be eternally vigilant? Be on the yeah, to always be on the alert, always watchful, always guarding, always protecting, always aware that, that, you know, that freedom is not something that just comes naturally, that it has to be fought for, it has to be kept, it has to be maintained. Well, so does the church. So does salvation. So does what we have in our faith. We don't arrive at this just naturally. It has to, we have to do it intentionally. And then we have to be eternally vigilant with it. We have to be you know, um, aware that, that there's a lot coming against it, even from within the church sometimes. And so you know, when he says, I'm appealing for you to be contenders, he's saying, guys, it's time to take the kitty gloves off. And, and you know, we need to fight and if need be go down swinging that's the idea don't stop until you've exerted absolutely all your effort you know kind of a win or die trying kind of thing and so you know we have to use intense effort we have to exert ourselves to maintain what jesus gave us in the church and what we become a part of and so you know certain fights are worth having guys and some things are absolutely worth fighting for now I say that fully aware that churches fight all the time, okay? Uh, But we're not talking about just fighting for the sake of fighting or fighting because someone changed the thermostat or fighting because, you know, we're not happy with the building or the the temperature or the music and things like that. Um, There is a reason that Christians are portrayed throughout the Bible as being soldiers at arms, carrying the banner. Um, Turn with me. We're going to go through this a little bit. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 1. If you're there, say got it. So, you know, we get 
you know, first thing that God seems to do with Israel, he gets these Hebrews out of Egypt, okay? Now, you know, they've been there, stuck there for about 400 years, and you've got they're just chaos, right? I mean, they're not organized. They, they, they've, they've been slaves. They, you know, they have no place to go. They, they don't, you know, the Lord's working all these things out. But, you know, as, as soon as they come out of Egypt, first thing he does, man, here is he, he organizes his people into a standing army. And that's what the book of Numbers is. Okay, when you look here, it says, so let's look at verse 2. He says, uh, uh, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number uh, by their armies. So, you know, we number everybody. And, what you know, we've talked about this. We went through the book of Malachi. We went through the tabernacle class. We dug through some Old Testament things. And when we start looking at, at the number of people, all we really have to go by is men who are fit for war. Like, that's all they numbered. And there's a reason for that. It wasn't some arbitrary way to... That it was because, I mean, God is, is putting and arraying His people into a standing army. I mean, that's what they do. He organized them by tribe according to men able to go out to war. We'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. If you're there, say, got it. All right. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. Now that's important. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. God is trying to show them here. I mean, they're going to go into this, this land with seven nations greater and stronger than they are. And God is going to deliver them into the hands of the Israelites and they are not to get caught up into their ways, into their sins, into their iniquities. They are not to let those nations influence their families and their households and the way that they live and the decisions that they make. You think all this, I mean we go through books, Joshua, Judges, you know, we, we start seeing the conquest of the land of Canaan. We talk about, you know, the battles at, 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 uh, at the various cities there that take place. And we got these war hero, heroes all throughout the Old Testament. Do you really think this was all just about land? I mean, is that what God's concerned about? See, God's trying to show these guys what He's capable of. Okay, and we, we, we see that over and over again because, you know, it's, okay, you take the, the, the battle of Jericho, how does God wipe them out? I mean, in a way where Israel couldn't take credit, right? I mean, they can't say, well, we, you know, we, we put our heads together and, you know, we, we formed some battle, uh, we've all of our military uh, experience, we've, we put together a pretty good plan here and by the might of our own hand, we could drive out the enemy. no. The plan makes zero sense, which is why God chose it. 
right? And when it's done, this great city falls flat and they prevail. And they do it in a way that nobody, God's people or otherwise, could mistake the fact that it was by the mighty, mighty hand of God that these people prevailed and nothing else. They couldn't, they couldn't give Joshua the credit. They couldn't give it to their military. I mean, they, they didn't even have weapons. You know, all, the whole book of Judges, you know, that makes the comment that they don't even have a, uh, that they don't have a blacksmith in all of Israel. And so, you know, you, that's why they are, or Samson's out there fighting one of those guys, the strong man. He's out there fighting with the jawbone of a dog. You know, all these victories, though, to show that God is capable. And so, you know, how does that translate over for us? What kind of battles are we going to have to fight? Does it ever seem like we're up against, uh, you know, an enemy that's stronger and more capable than we are? Yeah, all the time it does, right? And so God showed us this through the Old Testament so that we today could have hope and understanding that God is capable, that we could still see victory in the spiritual battlefield that's taken place. Well, where's, where's that battle? Where's it going to go? Like, where are we fighting the spiritual battle today? It's in our heads. It's in our hearts. It's in our minds. That's, you know, that's where the fight is, right? And so, you know, all of, all of this, you know, well, you know, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Go over to Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> okay, probably real familiar with the text here. We're going to pick up in verse 10, Okay. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let me ask you, so what do we need that armor for? What does the Christian need that armor for? Okay, we need it to show up to Sunday school class. Right? Not so much. We need it because at 11 o'clock we got to sit in a padded pew and sing songs and take the Lord's Supper and then sit through a sermon. And if we don't have that armor, I mean, how can we stand during that time? You get what I'm saying? We don't need that armor for an hour on Sunday morning. God didn't give us that armor. We aren't told to be strong in His might so that we could come to Sunday school or to show up on a Tuesday night Bible study class. Guys, this ain't the battle. This isn't where it's taking place. Now, we have a, we have a battle to fight. There's a reason we've been given all that armor. But this isn't, we're not using it here. We've got to use it out there. Right? We've got to use it in the decisions that we make every single day of our life. And so we're not, I mean, we're talking about, 
You know, the, the point is, you, you, don't, you know, that armor, you don't need the breastplate of righteousness and you don't need to the, 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 the gird your loins with truth to sit in a pew for an hour, right? You don't need that to sing praise songs. You don't need that to do those things. But God is obviously expecting His people today, just like in the Old Testament, to be uh, arrayed in a standing army, right? That's why we've been given the, given the armor. And so we have to get involved in the good fight, right? Fighting for the faith which was once delivered. And we have to see that what Jude is doing is trying to rally the troops. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 10. I'm sorry, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, nor the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk about this for a second. Our weapons are divinely powerful. What does that mean? Okay, powered from God. Now, how powerful is God? Okay, well, do we have something that we can wrap our heads around that demonstrates the power of God? We got all these Old Testament stories that show the might of God in action, right? I mean, that's why we were told about what took place around the city of Jericho. That's why we're told what happened with, with old Samson and what, with David taking out Goliath. I mean, we're told these things so that we can see the might of God in a tangible physical realm. And then now we can say, okay, that same power that, was in, that worked with Israel, that same power that was there is working in the Christian but not in the flesh. And so we are you know, divinely powerful for what? The destruction of fortresses. Are we going to march around a building today for seven days, yell and scream and watch it topple? Probably. It's not going to happen. I mean, Jake's trying not to get his hopes up, but it's just not going to happen. Huh? He did wear his vest. <laughs> no. So what kind of fortresses are we supposed to be tearing down today? Yeah, I mean, that's what he says. Look at verse 5. We are destroying speculations. Every lofty thing that's been raised up against the knowledge of God. Well, where, where will we find those things? In people's minds. Now, here's what we hear today. We say, well, you know, that's how God worked in the Old Testament. But when we deal with people who are dealing with, with, with bad habits, with addictions, you know, dealing with just brokenness in their life and things like that, we sit back and say, well, you know, I don't know, you know, just kind of hope for the best. You know, the point is that if God could do those things in the Old Testament, God can tear those things down today. Right? That's the power, the same power that was at work in Israel in the Old Testament is there to tear those fortresses out of people's minds right now. Right? Any lofty thing that's been raised up against the true knowledge of God, against the true the truth of the scripture, we can tear it down. We have the power to tear those things down. Okay? And and that's man, that's encouraging. But that's why we were given these things in the Old Testament so that we could understand that today the attack is I mean, it's no less the enemy is no less relentless than he ever has been. But the battle was taking place in a different area. It's not physical. It's not flesh and blood. 
Even in the church, when, you know, this side's fighting against this side, that's not the real battle, man. There's, there's deeper things going on that has to be dealt with in the way that we think, in the way that we perceive one another and perceive what we're doing, you see? And so we can't be naive. We're in the middle, we're in the middle of a war. Um, who, who, um, who remembers what took place on 9-11? Who remembers that vividly? Okay, anybody here kind of too young for that? They're not even paying attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I was in like fifth grade when it happened. I was in fifth grade when it happened. Um, but uh, no. sixth grade? I was in ninth grade. Oh, I was in ninth grade. <laughs> yeah, 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 2011. Yeah, I think I may have just confused 9-11 with the O.J. Simpson trial. Because <laughs> I remember when that took place too. Yeah. <laughs> Very traumatic. <laughs> yeah, I was in I was in high school. I was in high school. Yeah. So, so okay, okay. So anyway, here's the thing. Uh, does anyone know uh, when the United States actually got involved in a war against Al Qaeda? Huh? Okay. When you know, we we understand that the attack on the twin towers. That wasn't the first attack, right? That the first attack was a van that was loaded down with 1,200 pounds of explosives driven into the parking garage beneath the World Trade Center. That was in 2001, okay? And that took place, six people died. The towers didn't come tumbling down. But here's my point, we didn't get involved for several years after that. But there was a point in our history as a country when they were at war with us, but we weren't at war with them. Jude's writing to Christians that are engaged, the enemies at war with them, but they're not at war with the enemy. Do you understand what we're getting at? And so this is a call to arms. You know, it's, it's necessary, Jude, to rally the troops for the fight because the fight's happening whether they see it or not. And, you know, it, it, it really blows my mind today. I mean, you don't have to read much of the Old Testament to realize that there was never a time in the history of, of God's people in the Old Testament where false prophets and false teaching wasn't just running rampant, where people would gravitate toward being told what they want to hear, where the prophets would be more than happy to tell people that everything's fine and God is happy with everything that's going on and God's going to bless you, even though that God's message said quite the contrary. And any time that someone stood up to preached the truth, what did they do to him? They killed him. And we think we've got it figured out today. Why on earth would we think it wouldn't be the same? And well, again, we're not talking about the world and a few people in the world. Like we're talking about God's people tolerating, raising up, encouraging false teachers to tickle their ears and crucifying anybody that would stand on the truth. God's people. And then we go into the New Testament and you can't show me a book that doesn't have some warning about the dangers of false teaching in the New Testament. We see everywhere the church went, everywhere the truth went, false teachers followed right behind. Every time a church got started, they'd come in and try to steal it, try to pull it back. We see uh, a gravitation toward either legalism or lawlessness everywhere that we look and we think we've got it figured out that that's not a problem today 
I was told when I was in school, and it didn't, it didn't mean much to me then, you know, because, I mean, this has been a while ago, but I, I remember sitting through a class, and one of the professors told me that every generation is going to have to fight for the biblical pattern for the church. Every single generation has to fight for it. And I thought, well, you know, how, maybe we just get it right, and then the fight, you know, maybe they won't have to fight, but that's not how it works, right? And so here, here's, here's my point. Jude says it's necessary to write a letter that calls everyone to the side that we have to stand up and fight and, and exert our effort in this fight for the faith. Why is that letter necessary? People have a tendency to not be able to hold on to a good thing. And our history as a country, our history as God's people, the history of, of God's people throughout the Old Testament, the track record is there, guys. And every time they had it right, they would lose it. Every time that they had it where it needed to be and reform came in, it would only be partial reform or there would be things left that needed to be taken care of that were left undone and those things never would went away. You know, we, we did, you know, if you guys were part of the study with Darren, we talked a lot about the divided kingdom. And of course, after, after uh, you know, Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom split with Jeroboam and, and Rehoboam. And, you know, the north you know, because of insecurities and doubts and, and things, you know, they set up these, these golden calf worship at the top and the bottom of the, of the northern kingdom and told everybody it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Of course, he was, he's scared. You know, he was worried people would go back and visit the temple and then they'd rally back around Solomon's son there. And, you know, and of course, he's got the lineage and those sorts of things, even though God told Jeroboam that things would be different. Um, and, you know, what we find out when we start studying that out is what he put in place never went away. Like all the reforms that, that, that tried to happen throughout that, you know, dealing with, you know, Ahab and Jezebel and the Baal worship and stuff like that, you know, you could straighten some of that. But what, what Jeroboam set in place there never got cleaned up. That mess ruined so many, destroyed that whole nation. Uh, and so, you know, my point is, you know, people have a tendency to lose a good thing when they have it and they get distracted and they put the attention on the wrong thing and they lose what matters in the process of that and you know another another quote from our founding fathers uh, you all ever heard where Benjamin Franklin was asked by the woman you know what did you give us and would you give us a monarchy and he said it's a republic if you can keep it have you all ever heard that well why why in the world couldn't we keep it we have a tendency to not be able to hold on to a good thing, you know, that we trade it for comfort and safety and whatever else, you know, and so the, the, anyway, God starts, guys, we go back in the history here, we got three kings of Israel before the kingdom splits and you start with those 12 tribes and then that kingdom splits and you've got 10 tribes in the north, what happened to them? They're gone. They couldn't hold on to it, they couldn't keep it. God sent them, dispersed them, spread them out, and, and never told them that they were going to come back, never brought them back. I mean, they were dispersed. And then the, the, the bottom kingdom, you know, of, of Judah, what happened? I mean, it's not like, you know, most of that also was gone. You know, a, a remnant came back right after Babylon. But, you know, the, the point is, you know, and I hear this all the time, people say, well, God, God started our country in America and that sort of thing. Well, I know for a fact that God raised Israel and where are they at? You see what I mean? And so, you know, we have a hard time keeping something, you know, that we ought to keep. And 
it, it's, it's, it's a dangerous thing to let go of these things. And so Jude is, is warning that there's a danger in the church to, to lose what we have. And the faith has to be earnestly contended for. We have to exert our effort to maintain truth and to maintain the biblical pattern. And you guys, we saw that. We went through that tabernacle class, right? There's another example. We saw exactly what God set up on the mountain with Moses, all his expectations, and how long until they start substituting and compromising. I mean, Nadab and Abihu are fried on the first day of temple service or tabernacle service for substituting God's plan for some other something else you know they paid the price for that we get into Malachi and it's like well this doesn't even look like the same system that God set up in Exodus and then when you start reading Matthew Mark Luke and John I mean like it's really it's hard to even identify what's happening there with with the with the people and and the religious structure that God that was supposed to be what God started in Exodus you know and so you know they lose it over time we have a tendency to let things go and to stop paying attention and it's it's a dangerous thing um, we're going to stop there, take a break, and then we're going to come back and, and uh, I want to talk um, about the faith once for all handed down. Okay, so back to, uh, back to Jude chapter 1, uh, verse 3. Like I said, Jude is uh, urging the church to take some responsibility to get involved uh, rallying the troops here, and it's it's real important to see it that way. This is for sure a call to arms, and they need to contend, uh, you know, until their very last breath, you know, and have exhausted all their strength. Um, and, and Katie just reminded me, 1993 was when the the first attack. I had that. Uh, did I say it was? Not, I said it was 2001. That's when we got involved. What? 2001. That that's when. 9-11 but well, yeah their first attack on us was in 1993 so yeah so anyway sorry about that misinformation <laughs> uh, yeah so yeah sorry guys that's it yeah you can't find that's true <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> on this one, yeah uh, but anyway like I said there was a point when they were at war with us and we weren't at war with them and that's uh, I feel like that's where most churches are right now with the, with this. So anyway, let's look at what he says. You know, again, I, you know, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Um, I don't know what your translation has there, but if it has anything other than the faith, you need to fix that. Uh, it, is, it is the faith. It's not a faith. It's not even your faith. It's the faith faith the faith and so let's talk about that why does it need fought for why must we contend for the faith um well let's start with this how many of you have been asked the question what faith are you okay we get that a lot don't we people say well what faith are you and it's it's so so you know we know that at the core most people have a have a kind of a faulty idea or a misunderstanding of what faith is and that's and that's okay guys listen when you run into that kind of stuff listen people can only know what they know and if people don't get their information from the bible if they get it from another source there no you know no wonder the world's in the boat that they're in and so when you you meet people that are 
you know, using the wrong word terminology for scriptural things and they've got things kind of out of order, like it's okay to correct that and to do it in a patient way. You know, you don't want them to stay ignorant, but you know, you, you also don't want to, you know, well, I can't believe you didn't know that. And of course they don't know that. You can only know what you know. And so correct, correct these things, but, but do it in a way that, that, you know, that they understand that you're trying to help them and encourage them. And, um, you know, because a lot of times it's the, you're not going to end up in a fight over that stuff. A lot of times people really just don't know any better. Now, sometimes you'll end up with a fight, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and that's okay. Scripture can stand up to that stuff too. Uh, but a lot of times people really are just ignorant. And, and that, you know, again, that's not, I think we mentioned this last week, being ignorant's not, it's that, that's not an offensive, it just means you don't know. And there's, trust me, there's lots of stuff I'm ignorant on. Um, so, you know, you don't, you can only know what you know. So here's the thing. Let's, you know, we know we can define faith. You know, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 gives us a good definition of faith, but I'm, I'm less concerned about defining it. I want to talk about the, where we're going to get it. Okay, where does faith come from? Okay, we got a verse for that? All right, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of the Lord. That's it. That's it. That's the source. That's where faith's going to come from. Now, now, there's a lot to be talked about about what's not said there. You don't get faith from your mom and dad or your grandparents. You can't inherit it, right? You don't absorb it from sitting in a church building. Um, it's not a religious experience. It's not a feeling deep down inside. God's not going to zap you with it. Calvinism, Calvinism teaches that you're saved first and you get faith later. That doesn't work that way, right? Faith is, uh, is something you develop through Hearing the scriptures, hearing what the word of God has to say. Um, you, singing isn't going to develop your faith. Christian radio and, and Christian music isn't going to increase your faith. You can't get faith from praying. Okay, and it's important that people understand this because I've met a lot of people that you know they've never touched the Bible, but they listen to a lot of Christian music and pray a bunch. Listen, you ain't got faith. Faith doesn't come through those things. Okay, faith only comes from hearing what the Word of God has to say. And that's not the same as hearing what your preacher says. That's not the same as doing what the church here has always done. You know, I always stress with people, you know, if you've got questions, like it, it is not faith to come up and say, well, listen, here at Liberty, this is what we do. Oh, well, then I should do that too. That's not faith. Because that's, that's not, even if it's the right answer, it's only faith if it comes from where? From the Word of God. Right? And so if I'm doing the right thing because my preacher told me to, okay, you might be doing the right thing, but God is not just concerned about what you do. He's concerned about why you do it. And it, it needs to come from faith. Okay? And so, you know, it's... I've met a lot of people in the denominational world that are only there because that's what they do. That's what they were told to do. That's what mom and dad did. And they grew up in that. And it's, it's, that's it. It's superstition. It's tradition. It's whatever you want. They're sincere about it. They've got some convictions about it. But it's not rooted in the Scripture. And you can shake them people free from that by introducing the Bible to them. Okay? But I've met a lot of people in the Lord's church that are no different. They'll, they'll get baptized and they'll, they'll take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week and they, but they're not doing it because they've seen it in the Bible. They're doing it because that's what they grew up doing. That's what the preacher told them to do. That's what mom and dad did. And they have some, some, some conviction about it but just as much conviction as the people doing the wrong thing for that same reason. We have got to get people to faith and that only comes by presenting the Word of God to them. It's not enough to present them the right answer. 
they have to see where that it comes from the authority of, of the Lord in the Scriptures. That's faith. And so take the extra effort, the extra time, that extra step. You know, when people come to me and say, Ethan, I, need to, I got a question about whatever, baptism, anything, I, I never tell them the answer. I always show them Scripture, you know, see if they have any questions about what they're reading. Like, it's not faith for me to just tell them they need to be baptized. That's not faith, right? It's not faith for me to say, well, you need to repent. They need to see it for themselves in the Word of God because I have zero authority on this. This is all the authority, right? So faith comes from hearing the Word of God. Now, that's the only place it's going to come from, right? That's it. There's nowhere else. Without the Word of God, guys, it is impossible to have the faith. Without the Word of God, though, can you still believe in something? Lots of people do, okay? You can still believe in something. You can um, trust in something. You, and, that's, and a lot of people replace that word faith with trust. They replace hope with, well, I really hope. It's like a wishful thinking kind of thing. Really hope that God works this out. I've got faith that God's going to do this. Listen, if you can't point to the Scripture, then it's not faith. Um, you know, I remember, I think I've shared this before, but I remember, I remember, uh, it's been years ago, there was a woman, daughter was missing. This is a tragic story, guys, but uh, daughter was missing and she's on the news talking about how she had faith her daughter was alive. And then they found out while she was doing that interview that the daughter was dead. You know, and, and that's tragic, okay? I'm not trying to make light of that. That's, that's a tragic, tragic story. You know, how do you deal with the fact that she's got faith that her daughter's okay, but her daughter's not okay? You know, it's, it's, see, it's important to understand this because when people do things like that, who failed in that situation? In her mind, God failed. My faith failed, okay? Well, you know, you can have all the hope in the world that your daughter's alive. That's fine. That's hope. You know, you know that God's capable, right? Just like we see with Shadrach, Meshach, you know, God can, but even if he doesn't, you know what I mean? Faith comes from the Word of God. And like if you can't find, well, as long as you know, you're faithful, your daughter was never going to get harmed. or You know what I mean? Like that's not in the book. And so you can have, you can have hope and you can, you can have trust. And those, but faith, there's, Scripture backs up faith. You know? And it's real important not to confuse those things. Um, especially when you're dealing with people, dealing with tragedy, dealing with things that are unexpected. You know, it's hard when people think, well, man, I had faith. I can't believe this happened. You know, and they, they're misusing that word faith. You know, it's, it's really hard to get them out of a place where they begin to resent God and, and begin to really question things. And, you know, uh, we're not, the Bible doesn't promise that we won't go through hardship and pain and loss. I mean, it's just not there. We have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are available to every Christian. None of those are physical. None of those are physical. Now, I wouldn't trade the, all of that for the physical. Like, I think what we have is infinitely better. Um, but, you know, we're in a physical world and we deal with physical problems and those things. Maybe that's a different lesson for another night. But faith has to come from the Word of God. And so, now, you can couple that with Hebrews eleven six, which tells us that without faith, what? Yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't really matter uh, what kind of life you're living. It doesn't matter if you do the right things. If faith isn't the reason you're doing it, God's still not pleased. Do you see that? Right? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith has to be the motivator that, that produces all the other things. And so anyway, we get back to that question, well, how many faiths are there? You know, we're, we're trying to figure out why it's necessary to fight for it. 
Okay, well, here's the thing. When people ask how many faiths are there, we know what the Bible says, but in the world that we live in, how many options do we have? <laughs> All of them, yeah. Um, I, you know, any preachers here have one of those book of de the, the handbook of denominations? Okay, how big are those books? They're about as big as the Bible. Now, I, th I find some irony in this, that there is a book out there that explains the differences in 500 of the mainstream denominational groups that all claim to be following that book, and the book that explains the differences are as big as the book, right? I mean, anyway, there's some irony in that. But, you know, I, I've been online and looking. I don't know what the real... I don't even know how you find the real number, but if we want to deal with how, what kind of faiths are out there, and I'm using that term not scripturally there. Um, I've heard anything from like 30,000 to 45,000 faiths that are in the world, denominational splits, you know, things like that. And so, you know, like I said, there's, there's an issue there, okay? So how many faiths, if they, let's just say, let's just go with 45,000. It's a lot. Okay, but if there's 45,000 faiths in the world today, how many of them are pleasing to God? Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, right, verse 4 tells us what? There's only one faith, right? And the Lord, you know, we're told without that faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. And so, only one faith comes from the Word of God. Only one faith has God's approval on it. And the fact that there are more than one faith today means that those faiths didn't come from where? Didn't come from the Bible, didn't come from the authority of God, you see? So here's what's scary, okay? And we need to, like I said, we need to sympathize with this because, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm not a Christian today, okay, if I'm just some guy out in the world and I didn't grow up in the church and I don't have family members to talk to about it and I just decide that maybe I need to get this stuff sorted out, like, how do I even start? Which one am I going to go to? Like, this is a real dilemma. I mean, people, this is, this is what people really have to sort out. I mean, I, I run into people all the time that are church shopping because they don't know. Like, I, you know, what's the difference between the Liberty Christian Church and the church right down the street and the church over there and the church down there? What's the difference between every denominational group that's out there? They all claim to be right. Which one's right? And so, you know, so what are my odds of stumbling into the one that God approves of? Yeah, there's an actual, no, there's an answer to that. Yeah, that's not a hypothetical. There's, my odds are 1 in 45,000 that I'll stumble into the faith that God approves. Those aren't good odds, right? That's scary, guys, but that's what we're dealing with today. Now, is there any way that we can be 100% sure that we are, in fact, participating in the faith that is pleasing to God? There it is. By using this to determine what we're doing. That's it. And so, you know, when we get into Jude, he says, let's, he calls us alongside. Let's rally the troops, guys. Make this personal. I urge you and I appeal to you to contend and exhaust yourself on the battlefield fighting for the faith. Trust me, it's still under attack. 
It's been under attack forever. There's never been a moment when the truth of God has not been under attack because it's not convenient and it's not easy. It works. My goodness, it works. But a lot of people can't see past the convenience and what's easy and the fact that it's necessary for us to change to some extent. There's authority issues. I can't be the boss if I'm submitting myself to a Lord. I can't run my rebellious acts against God if I am called to lay down my arms before Him and surrender to Him as my King. Right? And so people struggle with these things. But there is a way for sure to know that we have the right faith. Let's go back to Jude there. Verse 1, verse 3. He says not only that we have to fight for it, okay, but this is important. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The New American Standard's not wrong here in the way that they translate that. Once for all, delivered, handed down to the saints. The King James, though, is a little cleaner. And the King James will just translate that. Has anyone got it? Once delivered. Yeah. Just once delivered, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea. And so, you know, the, here's the thing. That phrasing... Once delivered. The faith has been once delivered. It's the same word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Okay, let's look at verse 27. This is a verse we're probably somewhat familiar with. Hebrews 9, 27. If you're there, say got it. All right. Okay, same word is used here. Okay, once delivered. Same Greek word used here. Inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. How many times are we going to die? Okay? I mean, I'll, I'll die in the flesh one time. <laughs> you know, and once I'm dead, I'm dead. Can't, you can't overkill me, right? I mean, you can't, I can't die again and again and again. I mean, it's one and done. That's the way life works. So once you die, there's no more, you, you, don't, you know, that's it in the flesh. And so, how many times is the faith going to be delivered? Once. It won't be delivered again and again and again. Jude says the faith was once delivered. Past tense, it was once delivered. It's already been delivered. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. <clears throat> this verse kind of throws a wrench in some Catholicism ideas here around communion. Jake thinks that's funny. <laughs> you got a weird sense of humor, Jake. <laughs> it's the vast. He's <laughs> it's going to his head. <laughs> All right, First Peter three eighteen. For Christ also died for sins. How many times? Once for all. Once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. So if we die once then face judgment. You can't die a second time. If Jesus died for sins one time, Jesus doesn't need to be crucified again and again and again and again, right? If the faith was delivered once, how can it be delivered multiple times? Can't. Now, you ever met or ran into a religious group that claims to have special revelation from God? They were on your porch a year ago. 
Well, I hate to break it to you, brother, but there's guys in the Lord's church that get up in the pulpit every week and act like they're getting special revelation from God too. Um, look, I, you know, I, maybe, you know, maybe it's just people saying things, but I think we need to say things right. But I hear guys all the time, well, you know, I had a sermon ready, and then God just gave me something else to preach Saturday night. We're not getting any more revelation from God. The preacher doesn't get any revelation from God. The preacher and you have the same access to God's revelation. That's it. We all have the same access to it. I don't have some special connection to God that you can't have. Um, you know, God doesn't zap me in the morning and say, Ethan, this is the sermon I need you to preach tomorrow. This is the class you need to prepare for. You know, and you can ask any preacher that's actually doing the work and you're going to find out that to do that stuff, you have to work on it. You have to work on it. You have to study. And you have, Kendall, you preached what here last week? How'd he do? He, he told me he did good, but I thought I would put him on the spot. And actually, yeah. So, hey, how long did you work on that? He's like, well, how old are you? It's 23 years he put into that, guys. 23 years to preach that sermon. But, but anyway, it took some work, didn't it? Yeah, and so, you know, so God doesn't just zap you with it, but I've, I've met guys that act that way. I, went, I was at a jail once. I went to visit a lady that was in, in, a, in jail in Covington, and I stopped in there, and there was a Pentecostal group had come in. I guess, I don't know what they were doing, but anyway, um, the preacher, you know, I remember the lady asked him, what are you going to preach today? And he's like, I don't know. I never know till God just gives it to me. And then a few minutes later, he pulls out a wadded-up piece of paper out of the shirt pocket. He says... God just gave it to me. And I heard one of the other ladies turn to the other one and said, that was a sermon from last week. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, so anyway, but people do. They, they really, you know, and, and you know, uh, there, there's, there's religious groups out there where the guy up front, you know, you, you hear about clergy. You know, clergy, clergy is a special class of people that have a special connection to God. I'm not clergy. That no, nobody is. That doesn't exist. But there's groups where there's a clergy member. And what that means is he receives special revelation from God. He's got a connection to God that you can't have. So don't question him. That's, I mean, that's what it boils down to. He's got authority to make decisions that you can't understand, and so don't question the guy. And so this happens all the time. Groups that claim to have some special delivery of faith or claim to receive or continue to receive new revelations, new doctrines, new creeds of faith. Um, guys, there's books being written all the time where the author claims to be inspired by God. You know, that happens all the time. How can they have more when it was already once delivered. Did you see where we're going with this? If the faith was once delivered, that's it. That's it. We don't get a second one. We don't get it uh, continually. You know, it once delivered. The Greek and the English both confirm there the finality of what we have from God. The faith was once, past tense, handed down for how many people? Are you mean to tell me that we don't get a special book for over here in America and that this book was for a different group of people? Right, you see what I mean? The faith that we have was handed down one time for every person. Every person. Right? So how many times are you going to die before you face judgment? Once. How many times is the faith going to be delivered? Just the once. Now what that means, God will not reveal to you anything that has not already been revealed in the Scripture. That's important to understand because we can all sit here and say, yeah, we know how that works. But I'm telling you what, 
I, I've met a lot of people in the church that when there's something they really want to do and it's kind of questionable, it seems like God always tells them to just go ahead and do it. Okay, um, you know, I've had discussions with people where, you know, we're dealing with usually a sin in their life and they're trying to sort out whether God's okay with it or not. And, you know, despite what God already delivered, God seems to be okay with it. You know, I prayed about it and, uh, you know, God's okay with it. That's what they'll tell me. You know, God isn't giving them any different information than what we've already been given. That's the idea. And so once delivered for all, means that everybody in here and everybody else in the world all have access to the same information and we have it in the exact same way, right? Your, your grandma, your mother, your, your dad, your uncle, your preacher, nobody's getting a special revelation from God. God is also not going to personally tell you what to do. You have to look for yourself and use your brain just like everybody else. The faith is not still being delivered. So, why would you have to contend for the faith? Why is contending and fighting for it necessary? Because there is opposition to it, and there always has been, and we know that. But again, we have a tendency to not be able to hold on to a good thing. And so our faith went from 1 to 45,000. Not a good sign, right? But that's what happened with it. And so, you know, Christianity is supposed to be unchangeable. The doctrines that we have are meant to be permanent, unalterable, and eternal. Uh, you know, the faith is not something that we invented or get to invent. It can't be modified to fit our whims and our desires and our comforts. And, you know, if, you, if you're going to stand for the gospel, you're gonna, it's going to be a fight. And I want you to consider, would God allow us to lose it? Now, let's answer that honestly. God delivered it once. Would he allow us to lose it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the purity of what we have in the gospel message, we could lose it. And so this becomes something bigger than just us in this room right now. Like, we need to make sure that there's a solid church right here in this area, as well as every other area that we can manage, not just so that we have a good place to attend and we like the people there, but like there's lost people that need a refuge, right? They need to find that body of believers. There's, there's young people that need to have a place to go to, right, when they become adults and when they become Christians. And, you know, we, so this, is, this is, goes way beyond just for us, okay? Um, All right, let's, uh, we probably won't finish verse 4, but I, I want to get into it because, uh, well, because, you know, we see why we, well, we see what's happening here. Let's go ahead and look at verse 4. Um, it says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, for starters, you know, we've got, we've got some warnings here that are important to, to kind of understand. You know, this whole book's a warning, right? It's a call to arms, and it's a warning about what's happening and what's going to happen and what it's going to take to kind of fix those things. 
these warnings, you know, the Bible's full of warnings from beginning to end. God is always warning his people, you know, that the danger of what's going to happen if they don't stay with him, if they depart from the word, if they go to the left or to the right, you know, those sorts of things. And there's times when we get into the Bible and like there's things written down that to me, I, I read it, and I think, man, God should not have had to say that. You know what I mean? Like, here's a good example, right? You get up on Mount Sinai, and Moses is up there to receive the commandments, and like right out of the gate, we've got, you know, have no other God before me, and no graven images. Like, boom, that's one and two, right? And, and you should think after everything that God did in, in Egypt, everything that God did to bring them through the Red Sea, you know, God kind of introducing himself to everybody in Exodus 19, and the earth shaking, and the voice of God like this, like this rushing water. Like, you know, why would you even have to say, don't have any other gods but me? Of course, what was going on at the foot of the mountain? <laughs> the reason God has to say this, right? And so, like, you know, and, and my re the reason I say this is like, it's, we should pay attention to the warnings, you know. Um, you know, I, I have... We could do this all night too. Okay, like here's here's some warnings labels that I've read on blow dryer. Okay, uh, you all check your blow dryer when you get home. Warning on the side of it says do not use while sleeping. Now I made now I made a comment about this one day. Do not use while sleeping. We found out we've got someone in the congregation at Glencoe that turns the blow dryer on, puts it underneath the comforter to keep himself warm at night. <laughs> I wish I was making this up. So, so anyway, why would, why would a blow dryer need a warning like that on it? Because people like him are using them while he's sleeping, okay? You know, uh, chainsaw, danger, don't hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. Like, well, I've, I've seen that one. That somebody has grabbed a hold of the business into that thing and tried to rev it up and get her started, you know? Uh, that's why that's on there. Superman costume, warning, cape does not enable user to fly. Like, you know there was a lawsuit. Like, that's why that's there. Like, somebody, you know what I mean? Um, okay, microwave, do not use for drying pets. <laughs> okay? <laughs> somebody put Fluffy in the microwave after giving her a bath. <laughs> like, that, I'm guessing. Maybe a gerbil or something. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, huh? Maybe, man. I don't know. I don't know. Um, they have their own cats. So, <laughs> but the point is, we look at these warnings, we're like, well, that's pretty self-evident. Like, you can look at a chainsaw and figure out what, what part of that your hand goes on and what part it doesn't. But somebody didn't, right? That's why that warning exists, because it happened. And so when we look at Scripture warnings, like, maybe you can sit back and say, ah, this doesn't apply to us. It does. It absolutely does. The warnings are there because it's happened and it will continue to happen. And so for us, like I said, we've got to be eternally vigilant. We need to be uh, paying attention to these things. So anyway, there's tons of places in Scripture where it's like, well, you know, how about that? Don't ever be surprised when God's right. Okay? Don't ever be surprised when God's right. And so when we hear warnings about false teachers uh, creeping in the church and uh, those sorts of things, like, you know, just we should stop acting like we've moved beyond this point where that's not happening. It's happening and we're not paying attention to it and it's a dangerous thing. So, you know, anyway, here we are and Jude, Jude brings up right out of, you know, verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Okay? Now, I'll say this, Jude is, is less about the doctrine 
and he's and Jude is writing more about the drama of what's happening here. And it's 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 you know, like I said, he's trying to get everyone engaged and involved and uh, ready to move forward with these things. Um, the trouble is where, according to verse four, crept in where, crept into the church. Now, it's easy, you know, for the church to sit here and pinpoint all of our problems on the world and act like the world's so bad. And we do this all the time. And it's, and like, I can get right in there with the best of them. Like, we live in, we live in some strange times. Things going on in our country, the, the transgender movement, stuff going on with abortion, uh, marriage, you know, the problems that are happening there, what's going on in our school system. Like, we've got problems, right? Our country is an absolute mess. But I, listen, it doesn't matter how bad the world gets. That never gives me an excuse. And it never gives, gets us off, off the, the, the responsibility of making a difference. Because, you know, you, you can read your Bible just as well as I can. I'm telling you right now, over and over again, you're going to find out that we are supposed to be the influencing factor on our culture. We're to be the salt and the light, that city on a hill, that's supposed to be us. Not the other way around. There's nowhere in the Bible where it's like, well, it's okay for the world to influence us and to, to be the reason that we're not doing what we should be doing. It doesn't happen. But, but here's the thing. I've had people in the church sit there and point their finger and condemn homosexuality, which is condemnable, not giving it a pass. But, you know, their own kids are living together outside of marriage. Is one better than the other? You see what I mean? I mean, both guilty of, of sexual immorality. Why do we act like one's a problem and the other one gets a pass? Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like, and I've seen this, guys. You guys, I'm sure, have seen this too. You'll get a preacher that'll come in and really just pound the pulpit on all the things going on with the church down the street and all the things going on in the denominational world and all the things going on, but never hit a single issue that's relevant to anybody sitting in the pew. And then we sit back and say, man, that was a strong message. No, it wasn't. Like, it didn't take courage to preach that. You're not preaching to any of the people that, that, that needed to hear that. You know, and so, like, if you want to be relevant, you've got to talk about the things that we need to talk about. And so, you know, like I said, it's easy to blame our government. It's easy to blame the schools and society and media. But you can't blame a world for lacking principles that you and I were put here to uphold. That's the bottom line. That's our job. And so, everything that happens, you know, or doesn't happen in this world is a result of what the church is doing or not doing with the faith that was once delivered. Um, you know, so you want to see a change in your life, in, in your family, in your community, in your workplace. You want to see a change in our society or in our culture uh, or in our country. It starts with the faith once delivered, being upheld, you know, standing on it, preaching that, proclaiming that, and sharing it to individual people. And so, you know, again, the struggle is not against flesh and blood, and we need to remember that when we're trying to pinpoint what the problem is. And so all the things that's going on here, listen, there is nothing in the world that can stop the church, but the church can. All right, there is, there is nothing out there that can actually put an end to the work of God except for the body of Jesus Christ refusing to get up and go where it's supposed to and do what it's supposed to do. The world can't stop us. The devil's not strong enough. But if we just refuse to participate... And to sit on the sideline, all the things that the Lord expects for us to get done is left undone. So the only group of people who can stop or hinder the Lord's church is the Lord's church. That's why this stuff is so relevant. 
Okay, and so these troublemakers, like the problem that Jude's dealing with, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And so mentioned just earlier, there's two problems there. Number one is these people are creeping in. So what, you know, you don't have to sneak around if you're not doing anything wrong. You know, you don't have to hide anything if, if, if what you're doing's right. Right? I mean, I mean, Jesus brings that up. Let's, let's look into John chapter 3. All right, 19 through 21. <clears throat> he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil so why do they why do they prefer the darkness over the light their deeds are evil okay their deeds are evil so they prefer the darkness to the light verse 20 for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed okay so there's there's a layer of guilt in that right it's so it's like well if if it comes to light that what i'm doing is wrong then i have to feel bad about it and deal with you know i prefer to do my wrong in the darkness where nobody's aware of it and i can keep it to myself and you know foolishly think that maybe i've got it managed or under control you know what i mean and so those are the things where it's like Achan taking the the stolen things from jericho and hiding them in his tent you know uh, under the cover of darkness no one will know what's going on here and so those that do evil they don't go to the light but look who does in verse 21 he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God see it, it's important that people understand that Katie and I's marriage is not like other marriages in the world but that it's 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 been wrought in God like it's you know we we live the way that we live because of the Bible because of God and so you know we've, we've got a good marriage and it works because of the because of god you know and and so we want want people to understand that we follow the biblical pattern for something like a marriage man maybe it might work you know what i mean so like people that whatever you're doing if you are practicing the truth you're not afraid for that to be exposed you don't have to do it in hiding you don't have to do it in the shadows and it's not because and don't don't confuse that with arrogance like don't confuse that with with being proud like you know that salt that that sitting on a hill uh that that light of the world you know the point is that people see your good deeds and and who gets the glory G yeah god does and and like listen you know we've been talking about israel today like when 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 the israelites defeated jericho like everyone saw like when he, when when israel plundered egypt okay like why was rahab scared did they think that israelites were were mighty yeah, she recognized that the, their God was mighty. You know, so when everyone witnessed God working through his people, it didn't make the people look better. It made God look better. And it's no different today. People need to recognize when you're doing the right thing that it's because of what the Word of God says. That doesn't make you look better. That makes the God you serve look better, right? That's the idea. And so those who practice the truth, not afraid to be exposed for that, but these people in the church, they crept in. Okay, look... <clears throat> I've, I've, I've talked to guys in, in the church that are going along with things that they know are wrong. And you know what? They're ashamed of it. Why don't you stop it? Well, it's what everybody wants, you know. 
Okay. Well, what are you teaching? Uh, they don't, they don't want to tell me. Why, why don't you want to tell me what book you're using? Well, because it's not, it's from some denominational preacher. They don't, you know, they're ashamed of it. You know, they sneak it in. Okay, they don't, they don't want to advertise that stuff. They're ashamed of it. I had one guy tell me, he's like, boy, he said, if you walked in here, I'd be just ashamed of the, the stuff, you know, you, if you saw the stuff we support and, you know, the, the, the things that the people here might say, like, it, it embarrassed me. And I'm like, well, why don't you deal with that stuff? Like, why go along with it? If you, you know, it's only embarrassing to you because you know it's not, it's not scriptural. It's not biblically based. And so the point is people creep around, sneak around when they know what they're doing is not upright, right? They don't want it to be exposed. They don't want to bring it to, to the light. But, the, but, but here's the thing. As bad as that is, it's worse that they crept in unnoticed because that, the fact that it happened unnoticed isn't on them. That's on everybody else for not paying enough attention. Not being aware, not being vigilant, right? Not, 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 not paying attention to the things that we need to pay attention to. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7. Verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus does not warn us that they might come. He says they are coming. Beware of the false teaching that's coming. It's going to appear to be not so bad. So pay attention. Right? I mean, he's not saying that because they're dressed up like a sheep, you'll never see the wolf. But that was a mess. (laughs) He's saying that because the wolf is dressed up like the sheep, you have to pay closer attention. And you have to specifically pay attention to not what they say, but the fruit of what they're doing and what they're teaching. Right? That's, that's the context here. Right? He goes on to say, you'll know them by their fruits. And then, you know, we've got the whole thing with the trees. And, you know, but the, the point is, you know, not everything that claims to be good is good. Not everything that claims to be from the Word of God is from the Word of God. But just like there being 45,000 different faiths in the world, is there a way for us to know what's what? Yeah, we need to, one, be fruit inspectors. But, you know, we have to compare what we're seeing with what we're reading in the book. Like we can, we can examine these things properly from a, from a scriptural perspective and, and find out for sure what's going on. Okay, if you remember, we went through the parable of the tares and the wheat and the Bible told us, Jesus said that while men slept, an enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat. Okay, and so how do you get away with it? Yeah, well, no one was paying attention, right? The church was asleep. And so they, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't paying attention to it. And so that's the problem. And so, you know, again, this book, Jude, is, it's a call to arms. He's rallying the troops. He's letting us know we've got to pay attention. Got to make it personal. But there's some urgency to this, and we need to pay attention and, and get behind this to, to fight for the faith because it's under attack and probably in ways that are already there that we're not, not even aware of or paying attention to.